Hey, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Late Night Happy Hour. Brian Kamenetsky and Andy Kamenetsky joined tonight. This this will be a lot of fun. We've been looking forward to this. He's an editor-at-large at The Ringer and, uh, of course, the host of the Press Box podcast, uh, Brian Curtis. Brian, thanks so much for coming on, man. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. This is fun. Well, yeah, yeah, we, yet. we haven't. Even- <laughs> well, <I'm, laughs> I don't know, but I'm just up. I'm happy, you know. <laughs> I mean, were were you getting forced to, uh, otherwise to go to bed at nine thirty? Were, were there? Were, is this like breaking curfew for you? <laughs> no, it's sort of like the just dad zone of you know passing out at a very early hour on the couch, having big plans, eating way too many pecan bars, and then eh, you know, my, my uh, God, this there. really. This puts the pandemic in perspective. If this is like a wild <laughs> night for you, like this is huge, I man. Am, I am dangerous. Let me tell you, it's gonna be like twelve thirty. Brian, seriously, we gotta go. <laughs> we really, wait, You want to play some like online stratego? I mean, what else? Well, there we what go. Else do we do? It was funny actually when we first started doing this. It was at the beginning of the pandemic uh, when we were still with Seven Ten ESPN, and we were just helping create content for them, helping create content for ourselves. And when we were like, we weren't quite sure even what the show would be or if we'd be able to get people to do it or how long they'd want to stay. And what we discovered was with everybody just, you know, at that point, freaking out about even leaving the house, you know, there's unrest going on there. I mean, it was really (laughs) insane batshit time. People were like really anxious at the idea of human contact even if it was just us like, i mean we like there are times where like bro like enough we're, i, I want to go to bed like we would just stay on forever <laughs> what are you guys doing tomorrow can i come back you know we have another guest tomorrow we're, we're, yeah, we're covered man pandemic really screws with your head brian it does it does i think i felt those impulses so i'm going to control it i'm going till 11 and then i'm out <laughs> like, Don't overstand yeah. my welcome. No, in the meantime, it's gonna be like ten thirty. You're like, when the hell is this over? Jesus, it's a long <laughs> hour. Um, so, yeah, for people who don't know, it's a it's a great podcast, Press Box Podcast. Um, it's not just about sports media; it's really just about media um, broadly. I mean, it's it's all of it. And um, to say the least, you guys have been busy. No shortage of stuff to talk about. So like I, I we all and and I always think it's fun to kick off stuff like this with completely impossible to answer uh, questions. So so when people talk about like the media, what the hell does that mean anymore? What is the media? It's a good question because I think especially with our pod, it tends to frighten people off. You know, they like, got oh, the media. Oh, oh, that sounds weird and and scary and kind of boring. But I just say it's stuff we watch and stuff we read and stuff we listen to. And I think if you start there pretty broadly, it actually sounds a lot more fun. And, you know, you, you started it, you started a kind of inviting place. Oh, I watch stuff. I read stuff. Oh, those guys are talking about that. Okay. I, I can hang with that. Stars. They're just like us. <laughs> there you go. Yes. They read just like us. They read the same websites. They watch the same weird cable news. And, you know, we just try to, to be the guys who are kind of watching and reading along with you. That's interesting, just because I guess to some degree you could you could argue, or maybe th- this is the direction we're moving in, that media and journalism, which get lumped together, or I think have always been sort of defined as the same thing, they they're not the same thing anymore. Like they're they, they the really thing. they're starting to mean something completely different. No, I mean I think we see this with ESPN. You know, every time something happens at ESPN, it's like is what's happening at ESPN journalism. Is what's happening at ESPN something else? Is journalism going away? Is something else going away? So no, I, I think those are two totally different things. I also think it's a way of just 
doing media from the ground up rather than the top down. Because I know as a guy who writes about this and talks about this, you're constantly worried about what is this executive doing, right? What is this, you know, highly paid sports host doing? What problems are on their mind? But at some level, it's about you as a consumer enjoying this stuff or not enjoying it. And I think if you sort of start there, at least I feel if I start there, I come up with a whole, you know, I sort of come at it from a much better angle. The thing that I think is is fascinating about it, though, is the way, and we've seen it, you know, you certainly see it in politics. We've seen it with Kyrie Irving over the last couple, like, it's, it's such a malleable term, though, where, you know, you can use it to mean whatever you need it to mean for whatever kind of boogeyman you're looking for at any given moment, that to me, it's almost like lost any kind of, like I don't that's it's why, Xerox. That's why I it's I don't know what it means. Yeah, it's Xerox, sure. it's Kleenex, it's it's soda. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's just this large encompassing term. Right. And we've seen it in the last couple of years, especially become this just horrible boogeyman, right? The media, the media is telling you this, the media is lying to you. Well, the the media is just kind of everything, right? And I was my biggest pet peeve is when I see somebody on Twitter or heaven forbid in a piece blame the media for something. Would just tell us exactly who is doing whatever you're right. That's that's yeah, exactly. Because you Name can always find someone. Yeah, and it's a lot easier just to say, well, you know, the media never says this, and then of course you can go find 10 examples. So yeah, it, it, I mean, or you get mad at somebody and say, Well, the media is doing this. Well, we'll put their name in the story, right? If you if you want to call them out, because then they the media can't defend itself. <laughs> if you blame right. the media, the media can't say, Hey, 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 wait a second. But individual writers and publications can defend themselves. I mean, look, if if somebody is really that problematic, then frankly, he or she ought to get tossed out. So, like we we need the help of the people <laughs> blaming the media. Be more specific, <laughs> like help us help you. Yes. We can get rid of we can get rid of this jackass if you're just more specific. Yeah, just put his name or her name in there. I always say anybody who anybody who attacks the media, quote unquote, is undefeated. <laughs> because you're yeah. always you're always gonna win that argument. But if you actually go after somebody, then you know, maybe you'll lose. I mean, if they, and look, if the problem is me and enough people define me as yeah, the issue, yeah. then you know what? I'm a big enough man to leave. Like, I'll go. Like, if I'm causing <laughs> this many problems, you know, worldwide, honestly, like, I don't want to be a part of that. I'll, I'll just go. I'll find something else to do. It is <laughs> no. about time we voted him off the island. Oh, is that is that later in the hour? Is that, is that like 12? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's 1045. There we <laughs> go. Every every show we offer people the option of voting me off. <laughs> I've managed to stay so far. It's it's very exciting. It's very so flattering. What are the what are the, the sort of the, the the consequences of being able to just use, like, kind of treat the you know you know just thinking about Kyrie this week I mean, for things that are a lot less important than you know the 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 attacks on you know free press and stuff that we've seen over the last few years but just thinking in like in sort of more frivolous stuff like sports media being able to just point to the media and and kind of, and, and leave it at that what is that what what are the consequences for athletes what do you think the consequences are for you know sports journalists and sports entities that cover it? because it's not I don't think it's without consequence at least to me no, it's not. I mean, look, if you if you call enough people pawns, there's got to be a consequence <laughs> down the line. No, but I think the repetition of what we're talking about, just saying the media this, the media that. And by the way, it's not just one political group. Everybody kind of does. Correct. This, is it creates this suspicion in the media. 
uh, of the media, I should say, of people probably within the media too. But I know I'll just go to my like, I always use my uncles who live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, watch tons of ESPN as kind of my control group for anything. But <laughs> if I go to them and say, what do you think of the media? They'll just give me this whole list of, of complaints and, and everything else. I say, you know, I'm in the media, right? You know, me, your nephew, I'm the media. But what it's done is just like it's created all the suspicion and a lot of, you know, just a bad taste in people's mouths, even if they're still watching. Right. They may yeah. still watch and listen and do all the read all the time. But for some reason, that word just triggers something and they're they just go to this weird place. Well, I mean, you can become addicted to many things that you consider negative, like in your life. I mean, you know, people hate watch. They hate, you know, it's that great scene in private parts. The Howard Stern movie where they they find out that he, <laughs> yeah. he gets more listenership from people that hate him than people that love him. And it's always the same reason we want to hear what he says next. So, of, you know, I mean, yeah, hate, a lot of hate sports talk professionals have made a lot of money on that. Oh, <laughs> you, you think, I mean, you know, <laughs> one of them rhymes with bip scalus, you know, I mean, they, but I mean, look, yeah. I've actually found my problem is I'm neither likable enough nor hateable enough. Yeah. I haven't been able That's to master either zone, one. Right? Yeah. It really is. We got to get out of but you know what? The, I mean, it's funny, actually. We're kidding. But in a lot of ways, that does become problematic where trying to do the job as honestly as possible with as – I don't want to say no pr uh, emphasis on presentation because everybody puts some on it. But when you don't make presentation or sort of character in this profession first and foremost, that can be problematic. And, you know, obviously there are people who do a great job you know, playing characters to some degree. You know, Dan Lebitard describes his entire show as we play characters, and they do some of the smartest stuff out there. So it's not it's not impossible to do, but it can become problematic when that becomes an overriding goal. Totally. Though, though, aren't we all characters at some level when we yeah. when we talk, and even when we write? Probably. You know, I'm a writer first, but I know since we've been doing the press box, I'll catch myself. Uh, doing like, you know, honeyed announcer voice. Hey, everybody, Brian Curtis here. You know, what am I doing? I <laughs> my wife talk calls, like that. My wife calls that Radio Brian. Like she knows, <laughs> like if, if I'm doing like a hit for somebody or whatever, oh, it's Radio Brian. Like, yeah, yeah. the golden the golden voice comes out. But, you know, I find myself doing that. And it's not like, a, like an aggressive evil character, but it is kind of like you are, you're projecting something, right? You're, you're slipping into somebody else's skin when you do things like that. So I always, I always, I totally take your point, but I always feel that I'm sort of doing it too at a mild level. Although I might be doing it right now. I hope <laughs> we don't want the, we don't want the unvarnished thing. We want the no. polished product. We want the thing that we, you know, that we, we that we think we're getting. There we go. Uh, what has been the impact? Like you, you wrote about this actually at the beginning of the month with with Dan Levitard and his departure uh, from ESPN. You wrote about this on on the Ringer. It's sort of him as like the last, and I'll let you get more into it. But like kind of the last of these sort of journalist turned personalities, and, and ESPN's pivot uh, away from some of that. What is both that? What did that movement do? For sports, uh, sports media, and, and the way that you know, because obviously ESPN drives so much of this. And what does moving away from it mean? Jamel Hill had this great term for it, where she called herself, in particular, a former journalist. And what she meant was somebody who came up in print, and then during this kind of magical period of ESPN's history, they pointed at these former journalists and said, "We're not just going to hire you to like write a column for Page Two. We're going to give you a show." 
And in some cases, we're going to give you a show that's actually just all about you and your personality. You're not just arguing about some random sports topic of the day. You actually get to build something, you know, that's that's yourself. And um, it now looks like this incredibly crazy thing that happened because ESPN didn't have to do that. They could have picked sports radio hosts. They could have picked TV people. They could have picked anybody. But they picked these writers. And, and I think Dan, in a way, is the guy who probably took it the farthest. I mean, it, it is really amazing because it's been on the air for so long now, but he had a television show that was about his relationship with his aging dad. That was, that was the sports, that's what the sports show was about. And of course, you know, the radio show is about like 19 different things, few of which are actually about sports. And he just leapt into that. And to me, when now that Dan's moving on, I just see that sort of period of ESPN coming to an end. I really do. And I think, you know, there are some times when I really kind of want to have a straight sports thing in my life, right? I want to, I want, what did LeBron do last night? Let's talk about is, is where is LeBron now on the pyramid of NBA players? But I really love that period because I think, I don't think we're really going to get that again in the same way. Maybe we'll get through podcasts and stuff like that, but as a major TV network embracing quote unquote, former journalist, man, that was, that was different. And that was pretty cool. What do you think gets lost if that does, in fact, go away? I mean, I don't think it'll go away entirely because, you know, there, there are people like Pablo Torre and Mina Kimes and, you know, yeah. off the top of my head who have that type of background and are very prominently featured. But you are correct about that, that exodus that, that's, you know, been in the works. But they don't write a as much. Couple of years. Yeah, that is true. They, they do not write the way I, they used to or maybe even want to. I have no idea. Yeah, well, hence the former from Jamel, right? That's what you yeah. meant. It's like, I, I'm, I'm surfing off my past as a writer, but I don't have to go into the locker room anymore. I don't actually have to finish a piece anymore, which is like really, really hard. No, I think um, a couple of things. I think writers are just weird in a really good way. You know, you're, if I, when if we went and had, you know, and you guys have had them on the show, if we went and found all these columnists at all these various places, they're weird creatures. They're often neurotic creatures. They have very, very particular things. They've also come up in a very, very sort of grassroots way through the business, offering covering high schools, covering a pro team, working their way up, having people be mad at them or happy with them for their column every day. I just think that just creates this really interesting kind of TV presence. Mm -hmm. That you just don't, and again, nothing, I love sports, right? I love everything else, but it, it's just a different kind of person. It's probably a person that just has a kind of, I don't know, different set of, of um, what am I trying to say here? Stuff there of, of, of obsessions and of particular quirks to their personality. Like I said, Dan being the most of all. It does make a difference because Andy and I, I mean, we've, you know, not that we've reached the, the, the mountaintop in sports radio, but we or in sports writing, but we, what we are among those just people. mountaintops. We just right. haven't reached the mountaintop of mountain those, um, we, so many well, others. Um, I feel like I've reached the Mesa of sports. Writing. That's kind of like <laughs> where I, am right now. I definitely feel like I've reached a plateau, but that's, <laughs> but, familiar you know, with that part. I think that, you know, we, we are among that like slice of people who, because we were doing both at the same time, actually did show up. You know, we were at practice and we were in locker rooms and we were at games. And, you know, it, it, it is an interesting thing when you no longer have to do that. And look, I mean, for the amount of money that people were being paid to host these shows, and it is a lot of work and it's not easy to do. And I don't mean to say, but I mean, good God, it's a lot, it, you know, 
it's way better than having to go do the other work. Well, I mean, it's less driving around, if nothing else. Like, you can just prep from either your house or a studio. And you're paid so much better for it. Yeah. Yeah, and I also I was talking to somebody at the ringer about this the other day. You let it go, I find, when you're finished with it. I mean, I can be I can be neurotic about anything, but when we do a podcast and if it's a if it's a B plus or let's face it, even worse, I'm okay. You know, if it's a if it's a written piece and I do that, I'm just gonna think about that for ever. Hey, I will know. not read something that I wrote like more than like, I, I hate even Hell no. I oh, hate no. even hyperlinking to something that I wrote before oh. just to reference it because I might actually look at it and be like, how did that get through? It that, drives me nuts. That is weird. I mean, because I'm the same way too. I mean, I I have pieces that I that I've written that I genuinely think turned out well and I and I am overarchingly happy with, but there will still be sentences to them that drive me insane. Or like, you know, as much as I have a goal of, you know, trying to, you know, cut down on excess verbiage, you know, whatever, and really try to sell, you know, when Brian and I write for The Athletic, I mean, both of us try to do a fair amount of self-editing before we turn stuff in, if for no other reason than to maintain the control over what gets edited. And, you know, as an editor at large, I'm sure you understand that perspective from the writer. But there's something different about the permanence of writing Mm -hmm. versus the permanence of a podcast, which... By the way, stays permanent too. Like that, that doesn't oh, get erased yeah. either. No, and, and sometimes there. it's sloppier. It, it's sometimes like what doesn't work in a podcast can be way sloppier than what doesn't work in a written piece. But the written piece bothers me more too. Yeah, and you hit you. You put your finger on one of the things I hate. You went on too long. Like when I read something and I took a paragraph to say something that should have been half a sentence or just, mm-hmm. just too many words in a sentence. That's what kills me. Yes. So, oh my so, God. Then I, so you solve the problem by just never reading it again. All of my, all of my work is perfect, but, or you become I, me and you keep rereading it just oh, to torture yourself. <laughs> oh no. I, I, the, I, do, I do not recommend that. To no, anyone. I don't either. Um, one of the things that I, that I, I think is fascinating about Levitard in terms of the, of, both what it kind of means for ESPN and Andy and I worked there twice um, now. Um, and, you know, no, we have, you know, no ill will to the company, but one of the more interesting moments that we had there when we were with uh, the, the station at, at, at 710 was when Levitard was uh, replaced um, Coward. By Will Kane. No, oh, when oh, Levitard sorry, replaced sorry, Colin yes, Coward. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And, it it was one of these situations, and like we I, we knew it wasn't going to work because there's zero percent chance that Coward's audience is going to like Levitard's show because Levitard's show exists to mock Coward's audience. And yes. I th- I say this not to show my preference, which is definitely for the Levitard part, but more because like the audience is so much more fragmented now. I think now than it used to be. That I, I wonder what happens to a giant monolith like ESPN or sports radio or even like The Athletic or some of these larger media entities. How how does that continue forward? Because the the, the people it, it's so much harder now. I think to try to to to, to grab the the audiences that you need at the volume that you need when there's so much fragmentation of, of how people listen and what they listen to or watch or read or whatever. I'm so fascinated with that question, particularly with sports radio. 
because we saw it happen with newspapers. You know, you had the sports columnists who were just the giant sports columnists. And then that mm-hmm. generation, when they moved on, and some of them are still there, but when the when some of them moved on, the person who took their place didn't have the same job. They were the sports columnist at the Boston Globe or the Denver Post or wherever, but they didn't have the same job. They weren't the sports columnist in the same way. And I've kind of been waiting for radio to just kind of go over that hill a little bit. And in a lot of cases, it hasn't because the people haven't changed. You know, there's pressure from podcasts, right? There's pressure from the pandemic. There's just pressure from everything. As you guys know, more than I needn't explain to you. But it's sort of like... Welcome to our show. It feels like, there you go. Here, here we are. But, it's, but it sort of feels like, in a lot of ways, because that generation of hosts, because sports radio guys can be there forever in a lot of cases, that a lot of them still are doing the job like the job was in the 90s and the 2000s and the 2010s. I just and, keep and, waiting for it to kind of just go over that well, little fall, you know, waterfall. Well, I mean, look, it, also, too, the people above them. I mean, you know, the programming directors and the people making mm-hmm. these decisions. You know, they, they everybody, I think, wants to maintain some degree of what they know because the unknown can be pretty frightening. I mean, you know, beyond the idea of, you know, it's evolving into something that I don't completely feel is my wheelhouse or whatever. It's like you have to take a chance at some point. And, and people in those positions tend to be very risk averse, even if the path in front of them seems, I think, objectively speaking, pretty obvious. Like, you know, radio is, it seems like in a losing battle with podcasts or if nothing else, you have to start thinking about podcast presentation, all I that think, sort of I stuff. Think, I think, I mean, I, I cut you off, but like the, I think it's a losing battle with the, the, the financial sort of money-making structure. Like, right. That's, that's the part where I think they're really losing out, but go ahead. And I'm sorry, but I was going to say, but then you have to figure out how, how do we best do this while maintaining the slice of real estate that we have and, and people get threatened over it. it it's, I mean, I remember when Brian and I first really started doing this full time, it was with the LA Times. We were doing their Lakers blog, and it was the first sports blog that they had. It was among the first blogs they had, period. And very clearly, the people that hired us had no idea what they wanted, no idea really what a blog was. It was just, you know, blogs are popular. We, we need a blog. We got to bring in some bloggers. Yeah. These blogs, this, this, this internet. <laughs> and we we had ideas. Oh, they the way, had know how they treat the internet of the LA Times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean we 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 had look we had ideas. They had no ideas, so they're like, okay, you're perfect. And then they spent about three weeks watching us, and then they literally they never even edited us. We we edited each other. It was terrifying, but like there was still this church and state treatment of the internet and the printed product at the LA Times, even though it was, we could see then like insane. You know, like why, why are you why are you clinging to the paper part of this? That's clearly going to lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I, and I, I feel that when you look at every sports radio station right now, right? I think maybe now in the last couple of years, everyone has a little group of podcasts around the radio shows, but there was a time, right, where it was just, if you just kind of didn't hear it over the air, you were kind of like, wow, that just doesn't exist anymore. There's nobody out there, and it would it'd be some weird website that would be like collecting all the bits and saving them and putting them out that was not affiliated with the station at all, you know. And it was it was that church state thing you're talking about. 
I think most radio stations now have kind of figured that out, or at least I hope they have. You on a on a on a I I forget if it was this one or the one before or whatever one of the the more recent press box pods. Um, you got you guys were talking about um, ESPNs and some of the other CBS and the the, the NFL pregame shows because I think you know kind of the the TV version of what we're talking about here of like what are these things now this thing that we knew so well what is it today. I think a great example of that, as you guys were talking about, are the NFL pregame shows. What are those things supposed to do now? Like products like that, that we grew up with, that were so normal and are kind of baked in. But who are they for now? What are they supposed to do? Besides like ambient noise when you're, you know, making breakfast on Sunday morning. I I should have this on because I'm going to watch actual football. So I should have this thing on right in the background. I I think that's the calculation I go through every Sunday morning. Um, It's a great question. And again, I think it's so generational. The Fox pregame show is successful because it's the same guys that have been there largely since 1994. And so, you know, you have, if nothing else, you have tenure. All those guys are still here, right? And as soon as those guys leave, or if they, you know, if they were to all leave in mass, I think you'd kind of be like, well, is this still going to be a successful show? Because again, it's not about information. You know, there's like two bits of information in there that are all, all on Twitter at the same time. It's not, let us say, about comedy on one of those pregame shows. It's certainly not about feature stories. I have n- almost never seen a feature story on a pregame show, and I include College Game Day that I really loved all that much or can remember loving all that much of the same stories over and over again. But um, I think it's just about tradition at this point. And, and again, is, are people younger than us bought into that tradition? Probably not. So I don't know. That's another one I'm sort of waiting for that to 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 right, but like literally why do they exist now because well, to make money to make money right. is, your, is your answer you but need a they... show called nfl before <laughs> nfl actually well i know I, I understand that part money. but is it is is are, i mean are do they still just rake that stuff in i mean is it yes in that Absolutely. and they're just like do people still watch and it's your bouquet to the league to the league right we're going to advertise you nfl by the way, all the networks are trying to re-up their deals right now or get new deals. So guess what? We're going to commit to a three-hour pregame show on ESPN to advertise your product, which, by the way, we don't show at 1 o'clock Eastern. <laughs> we're doing a three-hour advertisement for something we don't have until yeah, Monday night. We're going to do the heavy lifting for your other partners until we eventually swing back around until we're carrying this. Or, you know, I guess in the case of some uh, no, no, they, they all, they all have some degree of, uh, carriage over that, that 24 hour period. But like in the case of ESPN, for example, you know, granted Monday night football is nice real estate, but it is kind of funny. And I never really thought about it that way that we are promoting something that will eventually be ours, but you're gonna have to wait about 36 hours. hours before you see it. Like I never <laughs> thought about that before, but it's, it actually is kind of weird. There was uh, when CBS lost the NFL rights in 1993 to Fox, there was a brief plan at CBS to keep the NFL today because that was their great franchise, right? Going back to Brent Musburger and everything. And then somebody finally stepped forward and said, wait a second, why are we advertising something we don't actually have anymore? <laughs> like, isn't that going to be really bad for the figure skating or, you know, rodeo we're going to put on the slot? And kind of plan got scrapped. Well, th- this is an interesting question from, uh, uh, Quinn on the on the chat uh, with regards to uh, 
Travis on the chat saying that the uh, pregame, the 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 pregame doesn't really have a value anymore. And he asked, do the ratings numbers reflect that? Do you? I, do, I is looked, that true? I haven't looked at them in a while, but they they absolutely make money off those shows. Okay. So thing so, thing, I mean, on, thing on network television makes money. I just think I think that's that's absolutely but like pre money. but or, like pregame. Yeah, pregame as so. well. Or you can justify it to just say like we're making you know this is part of our big lucrative NFL packages. We need to advertise the stuff we have coming next. Sure. So when, it's just all part of the overall investment. I would be shocked if the Fox show does not make money, even as much okay. as they pay those guys. What happens to this stuff? after the pandemic because one of the i mean i, I do some you know some of the, the other work that i do it's a lot of tech it's a lot of this and like you know work remote work was not a new thing but it's been vastly accelerated by the by by the pandemic and all of a sudden companies being like hey you know what this actually kind of works for everyone um sports is one of those things where theoretically you need to be there and you know eventually arenas will open and you can go back into locker rooms you can be around people but there are certain things we're learning you don't have to actually physically travel or whatever it might be when all of this is, is done, how, what, what, what changes do you think in the sports media landscape or how things get covered and all these things? I'm so fascinated by that question. Um, I think let's start with maybe like the games, the game broadcast, Joe and Troy are going to be there on Sunday afternoons. They're already there on Sunday afternoons. I don't think that's going to change, but is, you know, the Sacramento Kings going to send a radio team and a TV team to every away game next year, next season? Uh, you know, is that is that where we save the money by calling that from home? Because guess what? These games that people have been calling from home, I saw Kevin Harlan calling games from his basement. I think his daughter put that on Twitter the other night. They sound pretty good because yeah. these people are good. And I'm, I, I would rather them... I'd rather the pandemic be gone and then be at courtside and all that stuff, but they're really good at this and they can make a game sound what 90% as good as if they were there. I mean, like, and you can imagine if there was an actual crowd in the house and they didn't have like this weird, bad crowd noise, it would be close to a hundred percent. I mean, Kevin Harlan can make anything sound great. I mean, you, you could put Kevin Harlan at the most unpleasant experience possible. Just let him call it. And, mm -hmm. and it'd be amazing. I mean, he, he would make anything sound unbelievable. I remember like 15 years ago, I had an NBA playoff game on. And I was, you know, you kind of look at your phone, not paying attention or whatever it was. And then I just heard that voice go, down the stretch they come. <laughs> and I looked up and it was like midway through the third quarter. You know, he was just pumped. <laughs> he was just, he was ready. Um, no, he, so that's that. No, I'm sorry. I, I was going to just say him and Snoop. Like they should have him and Snoop call everything, <laughs> like every sport together like i don't know how you do this it's going to cost a shitload of money do it anyway like the two of them together should call everything it would be amazing <laughs> apropos to nothing my wife was sent a bottle of snoop's wine today oh wow did you guys know wow. snoop had a wine yeah hold on i'll be right back it's a fair guess oh good here we go yeah <laughs> i would i would have if i said yes or no your life depends on it i would have said yes oh absolutely i mean what what isn't snoop into at this point <laughs> I mean, he he's right now. He's off the top of my head. He he's got okay. Oh, wow. He's got wine. Ooh, that's, that's a nice label. That's a nice label. Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a really nice label. But I like I mean, he's he's hawking Corona. He's hawking Soda Stream. Like he's it's he's hawking it's, it's appropriately enough a Cali Red. Nice. Yeah. 
Is it in Spirit Lives? Nineteen Crimes tells the true story of rule breakers who beat the odds, overcame adversity, and went on to become folk heroes in their society. That's true of Snoop. This spirit lives today through innovators and culture creators like Cali's own Snoop Dogg. A leader in contemporary pop culture, Snoop embodies the timeless values of the 19 crimes rogues who came before him. <laughs> I want to know who they are. <laughs> well, okay. To learn more about this and similar stories, please visit 19crimes.com. Oh, there okay. we go. That was we'll, it. We'll do that at 10.50. We'll just read that side in 1050 when we run out of material. Uh, <laughs> I really should. We were talking about going back to the games, though. Yeah, I, I, it's going to be Close really interesting. Day. It's it's going to be interesting to figure out just sort of what is considered necessary anymore. And I mean, that's frankly pretty frightening I, I, for a lot of people because I mean, we're all. It's weird. The weird thing about media as this, you know, overarching industry is that it's it's incredibly omnipresent. It feels like there's more media in our lives than we've ever had or could ever know what to do with. But it also feels like if you're inside it that it's shrinking and incredibly volatile for an industry that just seems to be expanding at the same time. It, it's bizarre. That's a really weird feeling isn't it like you couldn't possibly read everything you want to on a given day and yet nobody has a job. Oh my, <laughs> oh my God. Like how did that happen? Well, the, yeah, we, we, every year, you know, we know all the people who teach the journalism classes at SC and Loyola and place like that. And you know, we get the question, you know, what would you tell, you know, young people who want to get into journalism? My answer is always don't. Um, and it's <laughs> very cynical because we need, you know, young journalists because the, the work is obviously important, but like, it's it's charming and whatever to like be on the grind and not making any money and doing all this stuff when you're in your 20s but as soon as you actually reach a point in your life where you need an income it's terrifying <laughs> it's the most it's horrible absolutely whenever everybody asks me for the silver lining i'm 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 always say i don't know that there is one right now but the only one i can come up with was there's never been like a really lucrative time to get into sports writing or this 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 profession you know, it's not like when I got in 20 years ago, it's like, oh, man, this is Silicon Valley in the 90s. Everybody's making a fortune. Nobody was making a fortune then. It was yeah. it was and it's not I'm not saying it's not worse now. It's certainly worse now. It's certainly gotten worse over the last six months. But it's not like there was this great golden age of everybody's going to make money. In no, but I think and this this is, I think, definitely the ESPN effect. You take these sort of journalists who become personalities and you see, like, if you can get to the top of that pyramid or pretty close to the top of that pyramid, like it's it's a good living. Like that's a lot. You can make a lot of money. It's like fourteen people. <laughs> it's, it's not very many. It's not representative of the entire group. Uh, no, absolutely. That's, that's one what, of the points I made in that former journalist yeah. thing. Is they were holding ESPN was holding up the dream. Right? Mm -hmm. Maybe you you probably won't become Dan Levitard or Jamel Hill, but maybe you will. And guess what? If you do, you make Dan was making three million dollars at ESPN. Like it is it is a life altering amount of money something that none of us uh, well i won't speak for you guys but i did not No, you feel free <laughs> you're not you're not going to end up having to issue a retraction brian i, I get there we go I, it's safe <laughs> um, turns out, pardon my twitter feed for just a moment it turns out the Kansas do in fact make millions of dollars a year <laughs> um, but, but you know the a lot of the sort of like 
the 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 impact that you know dan is going to go do something or whatever i don't know exactly what but like people are starting to move around but like the personality part of it like you can still go out and like Substack. like if you're a famous person you can probably get people to subscribe to your newsletter and other things like that but where where does the income come for like not just the the not the people but like the the people who employ them at this point because again there's plenty of people consuming stuff. There's plenty of stuff out there to, you know, to, to get and plenty of people making it, but not as many people paying people at this point. How does that, is there, is there any fix to that? Like if, if I had it right, then, then I would, I would not keep it to myself. Or do we just not know it yet? I mean, obviously it will, it, something will change and a new model will emerge and whatever, but this, think. I guess, I guess, but I like, does say, have any idea what that is? Oh no. I mean, I think we've all been patiently waiting for something to replace newspapers for a while now, right? So, okay, newspapers, because of the ad model, because they don't have classified ads, et cetera, et cetera, they're, that's, business is going there. But don't worry, sports writing will come over here. Well, where's over here now? I don't know. ESPN's laying people off. The Athletic is what it is, but it's had some layoffs too this year. I mean, it's, I don't hey, know every the outlet answer has. to that. The, the, yeah. Every outlet has been having sure. to lay people Just about. off. It's it's really really again volatile and and kind of frightening. Um, there there are a couple of things I wanted to get into you with that uh, are different degrees of uh, of political. One of them is the idea that you know in in these last four years of the Trump presidency and even the lead up with the campaign, like sports and politics, you know, it's not they've never truly existed apart. And the idea of stick to sports. It's always a ridiculous proposition, but these last four or five years, they have really been entangled in a way that has become pretty toxic. And, you know, I think Trump correctly identified that this is something that he can use as a wedge issue. And he has not been shy about, uh, you know, playing playing that card. But with him leaving office, what, if anything, do you expect to be the effect? Like, do you think that they can start becoming... I, uh, less toxic, less, less hostile, you know, sort of that sports and media relationship. Just, you're talking about the whole just generalized relationship between the two things. Well, I mean, like the, you know, you've got the audience now that, that is constantly complaining that sports Biden have become too like politicized. Steph Curry over Twitter. Like is, <laughs> yeah, like, I yeah. mean, that's going to stop. Right. But I mean, like the, the idea that the idea that sports has become politicized in certain ways I think is accurate, certain ways I think is not accurate, but either way, that's the perception of it. And for a lot of people, that perception has hurt sports for them or hurt their enjoyment of it. Everything has become politicized now, including sports. And a lot of that, again, has been Trump's very specific intention. With him out, do you think that can get dialed back, if nothing else, in in terms of the way people, I guess, both see sports but also too like different politicians do you do you picture them continuing to try to play that card yeah i mean i i I think just like the immediate heat of of trump going away will will be pretty substantial the fact that the president of the united states will not be attacking random athletes or you know i do not expect uh lebron james to call joe biden a bum in at any time over the next four years, though, <laughs> who knows, right? But um, so I just think that going away, the, the fact that you can't have a White House visit anymore, or the White House visit is now fraught, like that that would go back to the old sort of White House visit, which was fairly uncontroversial. 
Yeah, I, I think a lot of them. And with, with the caveat, you say that these have never been separate worlds and only people who wish, wish them but, to but, be separate uh, worlds. But like, here's, a, here's a, right. But like a perfect example, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but like no. you see Kelly Loeffler, she is essentially running for office by antagonizing her own players on the Atlanta dream. Like that, you know, that's become really part of her platform. It's an extreme example but I think it's an extreme in, example indicative of the climate right now. Yeah, and I wouldn't, and I wouldn't just just you know ascribe all these this to the politicians too, or, or especially Republican politicians. Athletes have won over the last couple of years a lot of, of freedom to speak and a lot sure. of freedom to demonstrate. And I don't think that's going to go away. Now, maybe you know different circumstances that that sort of activism will manifest itself in different ways. It, it'll it'll be different than what we've seen over the last four years. But I don't think that's going to go away. So, you know, when you turn, when we talk about just politics and, and sports and how they're going to coexist over the next few years, I still think it's going to be a lot. I think the, the level of just kind of overt mixing that you and I can just turn on the TV and see is going to be high, still higher than any time it was during the last 20, 30 years. How, how do you, go. you wrote about this in our, our friend Gustavo Ariano from the, the LA Times uh, popped in on, on Twitter and remind us, you wrote Gustavo. about like Tito Ortiz He's great. in Huntington Beach. Like, that's yes, my not... city councilman right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just started. I just turned. I, 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 I reflexively looked over my shoulder. But yes, like he was ex expecting to walk in. <laughs> we we refer to him around here as your. But like, yeah, that's not that's new. Like, but you're right. I mean, he, and he won, and so like, it, it's not new. I mean, you know, Jesse Ventura was the governor of Minnesota for you know. Like that happened, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> won in California. That happened, um, but you know that's how much of that is just the 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 politics of like celebrity. How much of that was sports? How much of that was was you know kind of the way media works now? Like what the hell happened with Tito yeah. Ortiz? I think it's I think the last part really right. I mean you know the fact that you can just have a Twitter account and you can be this kind of guy you know in the in the media quote unquote and you know that look they they're following the Trump playbook in a lot of cases. But this is what Trump did. Trump tweeted his way into our political collective political conscience, and then he almost kind of sort of tweeted his way into the White House. And somebody like Tito, I think, absolutely looked at that model. Not only just Trump's issue positions, which he is very close to on almost everything, but he looked at that model and said, I can do that. It's just a Huntington Beach city council seat. My, my favorite part of his race is that he wanted to be mayor of Huntington Beach. And he says, I'm gonna, I'm, I think I'm going to run for mayor. And then somebody said, well, you know, actually, mayor is not an elected office in Huntington Beach. And he said, oh, OK, well, I'll just run for city council then. So he is now part of the city council. But yeah, the, I, do I, have, I think I, the I, media part of it, the playbook, that's the, yeah. that's the big thing, I think. I do have a vision, though, of like in a year, Tito Ortiz, like sitting at every meeting, like going over the minutiae, wearing like half reading glasses, like pouring <laughs> over reports and things like that. Turns out to be the most serious council person ever in and like reelected for years because he's great at it. Yes, he's got just just kind of like a Hillary Clinton first term Senate, you know, I'm taking out all that. <laughs> turns job. out to be a wonk. <laughs> yeah, this happens. You guys come down so we can all see this together because I, I, I want to be in those meetings. Absolutely. Well, I mean, what's ahead, crazy, you, the piece that you wrote, I, and this, I actually tweeted this out because it really was the insanity of it. But one of the things that really stood out to me that his platform was basically make Huntington Beach macho again. 
(laughs) (laughs) Right. And if you spend any time on the PCH, Huntington Beach is not lacking for overt displays of macho. (laughs) Their way of just trying to get you to move, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It included me out, this version of uh, Huntington Beach. But no, that's absolutely what it was. It was, it was, it was, it was make it macho. That's, I think that's right. Make it tough. We're going, we're not going to put up with X, Y, Z. Yeah. That was his platform pretty much. One of the the very few things that, that Donald Trump has said, um, over the last four years that I agree with, um, is that when he's gone media, which has been turned up to about 23, um, (laughs) since he's really looked like he could win, isn't going to know what to do with itself. And I actually think that's, there's, there's a lot of truth to that. What fills that void? I, for one, I'm looking forward to not necessarily having the temper, but there is this sort of giant media machine that he has built up and the attention paid to it. And, you know, and all that, what happens when he's gone to that? So I keep asking political writers that come on the press box, that question, and they're too smart to answer because mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know that there is a great answer. Because I look around and I say, can the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Atlantic really have this many writers post-Trump? Is there really going to be this appetite to read this many people and this many words? I, I, I kind of can't believe it. And I think all those websites have just been through this period. On the one hand, a terrible period, right, where the president of the United States is assailing you on Twitter all the time <laughs> and, and turning people against you. But on the other hand, this period where you're getting tons of traffic. And tons of attention and reporters just seem more important, right, than they have been in a long time. And Maggie Haberman and those people breaking scoops on the White House beat, they just seem like big, important players in in history in a way they mm-hmm. haven't in a long time. So I'm I am fascinated by that question. I can't believe that the times, places like that, are gonna be able to operate at that same level. I, I just don't I don't understand how. There's just not gonna be that much news. Well, I mean, it, de- it depends, though. I mean, it depends on what they prioritize, because one thing I think we all know is Trump's not going to be quiet. Like, he, he's not going to just, you know, slink away and maybe wait till 2023 to start ramping up a potential campaign. Like, he's going to keep himself front and center um, if, if for no other reason than he can monetize it. So there's it's going to be interesting to see what they prioritize in terms of coverage. Because you can actually, and this is something I think you and uh, you and David talked about on a recent podcast. Like this is something that actually could benefit Joe Biden. Like the idea that so much media will still obsess over what the former president is doing, they'll kind of let the actual president go pretty quietly about his business. Yeah, it's, I think we called it the basement presidency. <laughs> it's just kind of like the campaign was in the basement and now he can just do the presidency in the basement because everybody's going to be following Trump. I, I think I think there's something to that. I think didn't Trump he gave that 45 minute speech what was it now a couple of weeks ago about you know, you're going to have like, to be way more specific. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, yeah, he gave this speech that was just on he taped it and put it on social media. And it was really interesting because oh, the right, media right, just kind yeah. of ignored it. Like everybody was kind of went, eh, that looks kind of long and involved. I don't want to get involved in that. And it was kind of the first time I've seen that happen in four years. So I do wonder how much I but we're not going to pay attention to the blow by blow and the tweet by tweet from him as much as we well, have. And, and it, it, it is interesting that that it was ignored in a lot of ways because the content of that 45 minutes was batshit. It was it was bonkers. <laughs> well, it was, it was yes, all it was. the conspiracy theories, it was all the you know, the lit but, and it was it was 
kind of but a again, hit. you're going to have to be more specific. <laughs> and, I, and I think that actually speaks to what Brian's talking about, like in terms and, and maybe you're correct. Uh, the, the idea that there's only so much play by play that, you know, Twitter play by play that media is going to obsess over with the former president. You know, when when the actual president start, you know, the president elect and starting the 20th, the actual president, he's got a lot on his plate. Like you may you may have noticed we're in something of a fraught time right now. Yep. Yep. No, totally. I think other one one other thing I'll put before you guys. There was an article in the Times that talking about the ratings on MSNBC. That whenever there were so many like individual Game of Thrones seasons within the four years of the Trump presidency, like Ukraine was a season, Russia was a season, <laughs> impeachment was a season. And they would say that the ratings would actually just really crash every time one of these things ended. Like Trump is impeached, but he's not removed from office. The ratings on MSC would just would just end because it was almost like this novel had unspooled. And then everybody was like, whoo, OK, I'm tired. I'm not watching cable news anymore. And I do wonder if when Biden is finally in office, that there is a little bit of a crash, just like we just don't. We're just, you know, it's, you know, the kingdom is not in peril right now. And we're just not going to be watching with that same fervor. I mean, it would be to our collective health. God. <laughs> yeah, that actually was the case. But it would, it would it could serve to to contract media, um, yeah, even know. further. That's the bad the revenue goes away. Uh, before Andy has a game, we get to. But I have one more question. I ask you in advance for springing this one on you, but yeah. you'll oh, you'll no. hear it, it. it's it's very much it, it's close to Brian's heart. It's it it's is. really dedicated to Brian. It is. It's a big day for me. Um, but there we go. But, but it's sort of my last question, and it's kind of related to all of this stuff. Are we? Are we at a place now, whether it's in printed stuff with, you know, sub, you know, people, you subscribe to your favorite writers on Substack or, you know, Disney plus you, you know, you get that service. And so where we're kind of at a place where the new model might just be sort of an OTT version of everything, a subscription model for everything. You're talking about for individual writers, individual just individual writers, individual media, you know, content creators, you know, ESPN sort of sells you stuff a la carte, you know, Disney Plus gives you X, Y, and Z, HBO Max give you X, Y, and Z. You subscribe to Hulu if you want that. You get Netflix if you want that. Whether you're consuming the 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 you know, visual stuff, the printed stuff, whatever it is, where you just are essentially pitching to people, putting the hat out and saying, Give us money if you like what we do. Is that as opposed to the advertising model we've all leaned on. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I think that's going to be part of it. I think there's, we're still ways away from that, though. Because mm -hmm. as much as these big things, we're talking about ESPN and all these things are contracting, they're still, they're still big, right? They're still, it's not right. quite, we're not quite into Substack universe where I'm going to go find my 75 favorite writers and chip a couple of bucks to each of them. And that's going to be my, my thing. Though I guess we're getting there a little bit. But um. And I also just kind of think I, I'm interested to see what happens after the pandemic, because I don't I don't believe there's going to be like a total snapback to where we were, which, by the way, wasn't a great place before it started uh, in terms of sports yeah. writing and jobs. But there is going to be a bounce back of some sort. And I, I don't quite know how it's going to manifest itself. But some of these institutions we're talking about are going to recover somewhat, I think, I hope. And and I think that will probably stall that process you're talking about just a little bit. Certainly hope so. I mean, just, I mean, not even for whatever self-interested reasons I have. It's just, there are a lot of people, I mean, it's, it's such a specific skill, you know, that like in such a specific world that the three of us are in. It's like, I mean, I've thought about before, the hell else do I know how to do? I have, that I have no use for Nothing, nothing. This <laughs> like, is it. <laughs> like, I don't know. I. It's kind of at times shocking yeah, and, and really... 
stark to start thinking about how little else you actually know how to do I when like, you've been I doing like, this I for like so long. This way. If I were to travel back in time to like, you know, the year 1740, like what could I teach someone? All I could teach them is wash your hands. That's it. Like, you know, <laughs> clean that. <laughs> okay, before you, before you cut that on somebody or like, you know, that wound over there, just, just clean that. That's it. That's yeah. all I could little hot water over there, buddy. That'll help you out. That's the only yeah. thing I could teach past man. And yeah. as long as you're in the profession, as long as you're eating and, and, and surviving, it's the greatest thing in the world. Because you mm -hmm. think, oh my gosh, we get to do this. We get to do this. We get to have this crazy, dumb set of skills. And this is, our, this is, what, we, this is what we get to do. But you're right. As soon as you look over uh, the fence and go, uh-oh. <laughs> What would I do if we weren't making it's the Liam Neeson thing? Only way more useless. Yeah, I, 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 feel, I feel like right now I'm standing on that ladder next to the fence, and I'm just terrified to look over. Like, but, but but I've been sitting on this fence for like eight or nine months. Um, mm -hmm. So today was a very big day, Brian, uh, for my brother Brian. Uh, there was a big announcement that uh, Paramount TV is going to be part of a Little House on the Prairie reboot. And Brian, my bring brother, it back, is Brian, massive. He is a massive. Love my, I love, love little. Wow, love it. Okay, like love he it. is a very huge. Find it very comforting. Like I mean, very soothing. It's very, soothing. <laughs> but I mean, also you know the supporting characters well. For you sure. know the supporting characters. Oh, yeah, the supporting characters. You know a lot of useless crap. I do. about Little House on the Prairie. So in honor of this big day for Brian, I have a game of trivia inspired by or involving Little House on the Prairie, but I don't think you actually need to have watched the show or be familiar with it, Brian, okay. to actually win this thing. I, I don't like know you. how often you watched it or not. but <laughs> uh, There were some, some reruns mixed in. I read the books with my mom. I remember that was a big deal, too. Uh, that I never did. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you, Brian, are an encapsulation of all the media problems we were talking about earlier, yeah. where the focus was on television and yeah, not the written good. word. You're you're part of the problem as you there get eaten alive uh, by the I don't same know. problem. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe Tito Ortiz was on to something. That doesn't sound very <laughs> macho to me. <laughs> Read a little house with your mom. Read a little house on the big woods. A little house in the big woods. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we I'm we went there just so I can vote for him again. <laughs> so I'm going to throw out these questions. <laughs> Both of you get an opportunity to answer them. There's no uh, you need to answer it first or anything like that. There's no your name is your buzzer. And you'll trade off uh, who gets to go first each time. So okay. we begin. First one will be Brian Kimonetsky. Which network was Little House on the Prairie originally broadcast on, I believe, in 1974 when it debuted? ABC, CBS, or NBC? Oh, Brian so goes first. Like UPN, because then I know it would, that wouldn't be it. I believe it was ABC. Brian Curtis. Okay, so it's not cheddar. Uh, I'm gonna go with. Uh, Quibi. I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna go with. Yeah, I'm gonna go with NBC. Brian Curtis out of oh. the gate, up one yeah. nothing. It was in fact NBC. Which part? Next question. Brian Curtis will go first. Which part of LA or close enough were the exteriors of Walnut Grove filmed in? Malibu, Simi Valley, Altadena, or Van Nuys? Brian oh, Curtis whoa. goes first. 
the, the very special porn for... episode of, of Little House. <laughs> <laughs> Laura really grew up that day. Lake or something in there that would have been a giveaway. Yeah. Ooh, tell you what, what they're doing in Mankato sure is off the, off the chain. <laughs> Altadena, Van Nuys. What, what, what else? What the Simi ones? Valley or Malibu? Oh, geez. I, I guess I'll go Simi Valley. Brian. <sighs> I, oh God, I was just reading about this the other day. <laughs> of course you were. <laughs> um, Malibu, I think, was MASH. I'm going to say Altadena. Oh, Brian Curtis up 2 nothing. It, it was Simi oh, wow. Valley. Valley. Yeah. Valley. I, was trying to get, I was trying to get my point back. Well, you're now two behind. Uh, Brian Kamenetsky goes first on this one. Michael Landon was a high school track star True. And, earned, and earned a scholarship to USC specializing in this particular event high jump javelin discus or sprinting high jump javelin discus or sprinting Um, i think he was a i think he was a discus man brian curtis javelin sprinting and what was the other was my third one javelin sprinting discus or high jump and you can say brian's answer if if you think he's correct sure I'll, i'll go high jump Oh, it was the javelin, and he javelin. unfortunately he was a javelin guy. Unfortunately, Michael Landon had a bad shoulder injury, which ended his track career and eventually led to his pursuit of acting. It also, I guess, leaving sports led to his pursuit of smoking because he was quite a smoker. Um, according to IMDb, during Little House's run, it was estimated that Michael Landon smoked. Is <laughs> amazing. How many packs a day? One pack a day. One to two packs a day, two to three packs a day, three to four packs a day. Brian Curtis goes first. Uh, I'm going Prices Right style here. Three to four packs a day. <laughs> I, I, I I don't I don't I don't understand how how you can do that. Like I'm going to say I agree. I think three to four packs a day. It is three to four packs a day. He was estimated that he smoked wow. sixty to eighty cigarettes a day. Menthols. Oh unfiltered <laughs> oh my gosh that is maybe the most oh. amazing feat of michael landon's oh. career well oh he my. was this in this kind of old-fashioned homestead right <laughs> yes yes jeez wow Un- i know unbelievable um but he smoked three to four packs a day uh which of the following future hollywood stars appeared as an uncredited background actor a student in the one-room schoolhouse. Emilio Estevez, Mary Stuart Masterson, Sean Penn, Diane Lane. Brian goes first. Estevez, Masterson, Sean Penn, Diane Estevez. Lane. Um, yeah, just trying to do the math here. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Sean Penn seems like a little young. Uh, yeah, I'll go Estevez too. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Uh, it's Sean Penn, Sean actually. Penn. Wow. I'm guessing it's because he had an in with his dad, Leo Penn, who directed uh, several episodes. Um, wow. So three to one, Brian Curtis, a few, uh, few more to go. Melissa Gilbert, who played Laura Ingalls, was nicknamed Half Pint on her show by her dad. True or false, she briefly opened a small ice cream company called Half Pint Ice Cream, which sold ice cream by the Half Pint. Uh, I'm going to go true. 
I think that's false. <laughs> it is false. Oh, <laughs> but she did. That, that is because that's a really <laughs> stupid way to sell ice cream. <laughs> she did, though. It was a popular show, though. <laughs> it was very popular. She did have mm -hmm. a production company, though, called Half Pint Productions. Brian Curtis still up three to two. Merlin Olson okay. was a Hall of Fame football player before joining the cast of Little House on the Prairie. Where did he play his college ball? Ohio State? Michigan State, Florida State, or Utah State? Brian goes first. Yeah, Brian Kimenez. It feels like it has to. Oh, I'm sorry. Ooh, glad I Brian Kimenez. I was really hoping you'd ask where did he play his pro ball because I knew the answer to that. Um, where, where, which state? Ohio State, Michigan State, Florida State, Utah State. Florida State was Burt Reynolds. Um, they had more than one player, Brian. Nope, nope, they did one. They had one guy. Um, I'm going to go Utah State. Merlin seems like a Utah guy. I feel Midwestern about this. So I'm going to go Michigan State. Oh, it's Utah State. Merlin Olson oh, wow. is a Utah native. Back. Um, yeah, strong yeah. frontier energy from uh, from from Merlin Olson. I felt. <laughs> okay, so final question. Oh, this is exciting. And here we go. Three to three. So here we go. The, the Ingalls family often ate beef stew. <laughs> <laughs> this is already great. <laughs> for dinner. This is true. This actually is all true. They often eat <laughs> beef stew for dinner, and it was typically a store-bought brand. Which brand was it? Campbell's, Hormel, Dinty Moore, or Goya? Not not on the show. Like, the show didn't present it as... <laughs> oh, no. The show did not <laughs> present it. I'm saying, like, this was craft services that right. brought in this store brought brand of what, these are the beef actors, stew. the Ingalls yeah, family. Yeah, well, like the actors what, playing when, the when, Ingalls family. Yes, yes, I should be more clear. The at, when the Ingalls family would <laughs> sit down to dinner, I should have phrased this much, much I was better. Really confused. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was. I thought this was going to be a daughter party turn at the beginning of this question. <laughs> that that winter, the Ingalls star. Remember Brian when I said you did didn't. I turn to? Remember, Brian, when I said you didn't have to know the show in order to succeed? Yeah. I lied. Um, but the Ingalls family there was playing. There was the other son that they had before Albert, <laughs> Phil, that they had to eat during the winter of 62. No, the, 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 the family, the Ingalls family in scenes often ate beef stew as a family for dinner. But the, the show brought in this store-bought brand of beef stew. Which one was it? Campbell's, Hormel, Dintimore, Goya. Brian Curtis goes first. Denty Moore. Oh, Brian I'm going to go Hormel. Brian Curtis oh, you yes. just defeated Brian Kamenetsky in what should have been his game four to three. It was, in fact, Denty Moore. Denty Moore still, right. according to IMDb. Yes. <laughs> it's, well, it's a very... Right. Somehow. I actually think that's that Denty Moore slogan. Denty Moore stew. It just <laughs> felt right. This is great, though. I mean, and this underscores... Monty underscore 10 just underscores why I needed to ask that better. Product <laughs> placement. There was no product placement on Little House uh, Prairie. <laughs> no. Watch. And, of course, there was this oh, one. Man. Cannibal House on the Prairie. Yeah. So, all right, man. Robert Rodriguez is making that right now during the uh, pandemic. I hope so. I would watch the shit out of that. <laughs> it's Brian Curtis, uh, editor at large for the Ringer, co-host of the Press Box podcast, which is a really, really great listen. We've loved your work for a long time, man. We're really excited that you were able to do this. Thank you. 
thank you guys. This was huge. This was fun. As I said in minute one, this was truly fun. And and I'm gonna be on this on this web feed for the next two hours. If anybody wants to join me, just come on by. I got nothing. Yeah, we're gonna be gone. But if you want to watch the <laughs> we'll be talking about uh, Denty more for the next couple hours. Sweet. Uh, so yeah, tomorrow night, Claire Deloon will get back to uh, some NBA and a lot of NBA set up with the season starting uh, for everyone. What? And some music because she's a musician. And, and so. music and pop culture and all those. But she's like she likes the NBA too. Um, all right, so we'll see everybody tomorrow. Thanks. Thank you, Nidalon. <laughs> <laughs>